Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. We are going to listen back to last year's social policy conference on the theme of Towards Wellbeing for All. And we were delighted to be joined from Carrie Exton from the OECD. So you can listen back to her presentation. She does make reference to slides. So I've included a link to those slides in the show notes below. I will leave it to McClifford, our chair, to introduce her properly. I hope you enjoy. Now, our first speaker on this session is Carrie Exton. Carrie is Acting Senior Counselor and Deputy Director at the OECD Centre for Wellbeing, Inclusion, Sustainability and Equal Opportunity, which goes naturally by the acronym WISE. Her team helps to build the evidence base for WISE policymaking, including the development of frameworks and indicators and their roles in supporting government decisions. Carrie is the overall editor for the How's Life series of reports, which provide an in-depth assessment of WISE trends across OECD and partner countries. Her ongoing research projects in the team includes assessing how the COVID-19 pandemic and rising living costs affect people's well-being, the economic, social and environmental and relational drivers of mental health inequalities and integrated policy approaches for tackling them. The title of her paper today is um, Building and Using Wellbeing Frameworks, the OECD and International Experience. Thanks very Thank much you. for the very kind introduction. I'm just going to take a moment to share my screen. So I'll move to the first slide and you'll tell me if that's working or not. So the title of the talk is, is Building and Using Wellbeing Frameworks, but really at its heart, this presentation is about making wellbeing an operational concept for public policymaking. Um, so this first slide actually has all of my conclusions, just in case I forget to get there at the end. And Really, the first thing to say is that for well-being to be a useful policy concept, we need to be able to define and measure it. But on their own, measurement dashboards are not going to change policy. They're not going to improve well-being sitting there as a measurement dashboard on its own. The second point to, to emphasize is that well-being is not necessarily going to produce a list of one-size-fits-all policy recommendations that are going to be true across countries and over time. Some of the real value of a well-being approach is actually about better ways of making policy decisions. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. And um, finally, I think there's been a lot of progress in terms of uh, countries' efforts to measure well-being. And we're really now in a place where decision makers are looking for concrete tools to help them integrate this evidence into decision making. There are a few examples emerging of these concrete tools. And again, I'll try and make sure there's a bit of time at the end of the presentation to run through those. So first up, why measure something like well-being? Well, at its heart, this is really an exercise in trying to understand what makes for a good life. This is pretty philosophical territory, arguably not something you want to leave in the hands of economists and statisticians. But in many ways, this really isn't just an academic debate, because when governments are taking decisions, they have to have a working model for what they think is going to be making life better for people. So in effect, they are answering this question, what makes for a good life on a very regular basis. And when you look across the broad range of objectives that governments typically set themselves, 
you really do need some smart policymaking to avoid trade-offs across those objectives. And in a world where resources are scarce and in government resources are always scarce, there are really difficult choices to make about priorities and there are always opportunity costs associated with those choices. Now, a wellbeing approach doesn't necessarily make those choices just melt away, but what it does do is provide a framework for focusing on what matters to people and for making those choices more explicit. Now, the OECD back in 2011 created a new motto for itself, which is called Better Policies for Better Lives. And if that's our goal, we really need a, a, an agreed way to define and measure what better lives actually means. Otherwise, how can, how can we possibly monitor our progress? So, as a consequence, in 2011, the OECD uh, launched what's called the Better Life Initiative. Um, and this really grew from many other so-called beyond GDP initiatives that, that were around at, at the same time. So we've got the Stiglitz-Senfatusi reports on, on measuring progress. We had a UN resolution calling for a holistic approach to development. We had Rio plus 20 in the 2015 Sustainable Development Goals that have, that have grown since then. Um, and we saw a wide range of national initiatives for measuring well-being. Um, so our work is, is both a consequence of and a driver of some of these initiatives. It's also, um, we're constantly trying to integrate these, these developments as, as time goes on. But in terms of where we started back in 2011, some of our key objectives here were developing a conceptual framework for thinking about well-being, inclusion and sustainability. We had the goal of embedding a broader set of indicators of society's progress into government statistical systems, working directly with national statistical officers. The goal, obviously, was to help improve the evidence base for policymakers. We have an interest in actually then seeing those metrics being integrated in policy. And finally, an important strand for us was about engaging with citizens on what matters in their own lives. So um, I'm giving this historical perspective partly to explain that within the OECD context, this, this really started in the statistical realm. So this was necessary and important because you know the, the origins of beyond GDP but also because, again, if you want to target people's well-being, um, you do need to be really explicit what well-being is in order to do that. Otherwise, you get into very circular discussions that say, oh, but we are improving people's well-being. Um, and it's very difficult to hold people to account for those statements. Um, so we started with this statistical approach to get the definitions and the concepts very clear. Um, but of course, evidence to monitor people's well-being is really only one piece in the puzzle and measuring well-being is not the same as improving well-being. So there's a much broader system of, of evidence and policy practice that needs to develop around this concept above and beyond indicators and this is something I'll come back to later. But for now I'll stay with frameworks and, and measures because this is where the OECD journey started and I've got a picture on this slide of the OECD well-being framework um, I know this is a complicated slide. I will make all these slides available for anyone um, who wants them to have a, a closer look at these. But just to say that the framework really has kind of three broad pillars. There's well-being today, which is these 11 dimensions that you see in the top left of, of the framework. 
There's inclusion, so looking at how these outcomes are distributed across society. And then there's sustainability. So down at the bottom, we've got the core resources for future well-being. So these are, are the individual and societal uh, resources that help to support well-being in the long run. Um, again, I won't go through every element of this slide, but happy to make it available. But I guess some things to emphasize here. This approach is very much focused on people, not just the economic system. In the top half of the framework, we're really looking at outcomes for people. So how good is life? In the bottom half of the framework, we're more concerned with resources that help sustain those outcomes. We look at both averages and inequalities. It's not very visible when you see a framework diagram like this, but for every one of these outcomes that you see in the top half of the slide there, we try and disaggregate data as much as possible across groups, um, looking at deprivations, looking at the size of the gap between people at the top of the distribution and people at the bottom. So there's a really strong emphasis on inclusion throughout all of our work. Um, the framework also incorporates both objective and subjective aspects. So upfront, a really important thing to say, many people when they hear the word well-being understand this to mean subjective, how you perceive your life. And this is a really important part of our framework. We, we capture it in what's called subjective well-being. Um, and you know, if you want to know how life is going for people, it's really important to ask them. Um, but many, many aspects of our framework are also captured using objective data up, coming up through national statistical systems. Um, so when we're looking at things like income and wealth, when we're looking at the environment, when we're looking at health, we've got objective indicators of these outcomes. It's not only how people feel about these outcomes. Now, it's very odd for me actually to give a presentation without giving um, specific statistics. And there isn't time today to go into the detail of exactly how we measure these different components. Um, but just to say for anyone who is interested in understanding how we take a concept like social capital and try and measure it, um, we've got a whole series of publications at the OECD that capture trends, um, inequalities over time across over 80 different indicators of well-being. Um, we also have tailored information for specific countries. So I've got the Ireland country note up on the screen here. Um, so for those who actually want to really dig into the numbers, um, I, I completely understand that instinct. And, and we do have a lot of numbers um, that can be shared with you. So this next slide is just to, to really emphasize the OECD isn't going solo on this. So there are um, more than half of all OECD countries, so member governments, who've developed multidimensional beyond GDP or wellbeing frameworks in the last 20 years. And you'll see this figure gets progressively more crowded and even harder to read as you move from left to right, because this activity has really intensified in the last 10 years. So over on the left, we've got some early pioneers like Australia, Finland, Latvia. And in the middle, there's a couple of countries that were developing their approaches around the same time that the OECD launched its Better Life Initiative. Um, so things like the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Austria, Portugal, Italy. And on the top right there, you can see some of the newest additions um, to the OECD family of well-being frameworks. So countries like Canada, Japan, Spain, and of course, Ireland um, have produced indicator sets or well-being dashboards and frameworks very recently. 
So again, there isn't time to look in depth at all of these frameworks, um, but we can sort of look at a few key characteristics. And this slide here shows the number of indicators used in these um, various different national measurement initiatives. So I should say this analysis was done in 2019, so it doesn't include the full selection of frameworks on the previous slide, but it still illustrates quite well that these measurement dashboards come in quite different shapes and sizes. And this perhaps reflects the fact that some of them have been developed as very broad-based monitoring tools, while others have been designed by central government departments and they're focused on a much narrower set of key leading indicators that are considered really important for policymaking right here, right now. The other thing to say here is that you'll see some countries are mentioned several times, both on this slide and on the previous slide. And that's because very often there'll be a measurement framework that's about monitoring well-being in a very broad sense, developed quite often by the National Statistical Office. But it might be paired with a more policy oriented framework. Typically, Treasury's Department of Finance, Prime Minister's Office are, are, are some of the lead um, contenders. And those frameworks tend to be more focused. So if we take the example, for example, in um, Italy, where you've got the National Statistical Office producing their set of equitable and sustainable well-being indicators. That's a, a dashboard of 130 different indicators. But over in the Ministry of Economy and Finance in Italy, there is a much more limited set of 12 indicators that they are using in the context of their long-term fiscal strategy and in the context of their budgeting. So the Ministry of Finance has said these 12 are key for Italy here and now today, but that is complemented by a much richer, much more extensive dashboard. And I think this is an important element because that more extensive dashboard helps you look ahead at problems emerging. The shorter dashboard will only tell you, where, you know, what you're focusing on today, but you might miss something if you're not also monitoring other outcomes. So I'll, I'll race through quickly. Um, I, again, this is a very complicated slide and it will be very tiny on your screens, but I'm very happy to share all of this information with folks. Um, so despite the varied shape and size of these different indicator sets, there are often very common themes emerging in terms of how countries are understanding this concept of well-being. So this is a heat map that shows the extent of agreement across a selection of well-being measurement initiatives. And um, the darker the shade on the heat map means the higher level of agreement at the indicator level. So this is a really quite um, detailed and specific analysis. So what you can see here, hopefully, from, from the shape of the heat map is that in areas like health, education, jobs, environment and natural capital. These are covered as concepts in almost every um, well-being framework that we see. And there is quite a high level of agreement in terms of some of the key indicators that are used to illustrate these dimensions. Topics like civic engagement, housing, work-life balance, they're covered in many dashboards, um, but there's not quite so much agreement there in terms of the specific indicators used. And that might say something about the need for, you know, national perspectives on, on these indicators, or it might simply mean that there's a lack of international harmonization, which is an area where the OECD has been working quite hard um, to improve the quality, availability and comparability of well-being data. Um, but that is probably another story for another time. Um, so 
The next couple of slides are just an illustration of some of the other frameworks that we've seen. Um, again, I will not go through these in detail, but for those who want a closer look, the slides will be available. Um, this is an example actually taken from Eurostat, who've been co collecting quality of life indicators since 2015. Um, and this framework has eight plus one dimensions, the plus one being the overall experience of life at the top there, which is a sort of self-reported summary. So in, in the OECD context, we'd call that subjective well-being. This is about how people themselves view their own lives. Uh, this agenda goes well beyond Europe. And here we can see Canada's quality of life framework, which was developed in 2021 by the Department of Finance in Canada. Um, but even though finance had the lead, it's really important to emphasize that this was a, a cross-government initiative in Canada. And Statistics Canada also have responsibility for follow-up in terms of the, the indicators. Um, the Canadian framework is summarized into these five pillars health, society, environment, good governance, and prosperity. And underneath each of these is a set of specific indicators. You can see some of the headlines just on the right-hand side there. Um, and there's a call out here to explain that um, quality of life is, is really underpinned by holistic thinking. So even if we're separating these into different dimensions or domains, the idea is very much to look at, at, at these issues in the round. Other cross-cutting themes include fairness and inclusion, and also sustainability and resilience in Canada. You've already heard a bit about New Zealand, and I think you'll hear a bit more about New Zealand. Um, but they became world famous for their first wellbeing budget in 2019. Uh, and this slide just has a, a picture of the living standards framework. So the dashboard that New Zealand Treasury produced in 2018 looked quite similar to the OECD approach. But since then, the Treasury have been consulting and making adjustments to try and um, make sure that the framework is really speaking to the issues that matter for New Zealanders. There's also been a big effort to link the living standards framework with the Maori perspective on well-being. And again, we heard Anne-Marie mention this, but there is there is a separate framework that is also used by the Treasury, but there's been an emphasis to try and draw out the synergies between these two, again, so that this living standards framework is capturing something that is felt to be relevant for all New Zealanders. There's also been a big effort to try and align this with some of the child well-being work that's happening in New Zealand. Um, so, for example, in the top part of this framework, you'll see leisure and play, um, which is sadly not something you see emphasised in, in the work of many treasuries, but is emphasised here as a connection um, both to the child wellbeing framework, but also to the concept that, you know, life, life goes beyond your economic conditions. Um, this new proposal also has a strong emphasis on institutions and governance. There's that layer in the middle there, recognising that these have a really vital role to play in how efficiently the wealth of New Zealand that you can see in the bottom of the framework there kind of generates the well-being outcomes that you can see at the top. So there is a mediating role for institutions here in terms of transforming the wealth of New Zealand into well-being outcomes that we see today. And again, along the right-hand side, you can see that distribution, resilience, productivity, sustainability, these are cross-cutting themes within the New Zealand framework. Okay, last couple of slides. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, policy use and specifically 
starting with the motivations for generating these frameworks, but then moving to, again, a couple of practical examples if there's time. Um, so when you look at the motivations that countries state for why they are generating these activities, uh, a central one, which has been a very, very long um, long raised issue um, is around a more complete and balanced picture of societal progress. The reason I say long, long standing issue is, of course, the critique of, of GDP has been ongoing since the creation of GDP. And we've seen all sorts of waves of movements dating at least back to the 70s with the social indicators movement in terms of the need to go beyond GDP. So this is this is not a new um, motivation, nor is it a new activity, um, but there's maybe a, a, a sense of momentum around this right now. Um, a second use is to highlight inequalities across a really wide range of outcomes and opportunities. So, you know, we hear a lot about income inequalities, but health inequalities, um, inequalities in access to jobs, these sorts of things are, are all important to document as well. Um, a third use of these frameworks is around fostering public debate and engagement about what matters most. I think we've already heard um, some of the consensus building activities um, mentioned this morning. In terms of specific uses for the government, more on, on the technical or civil service side of the government, um, one of the uses of these frameworks is around strategic alignment of goals across government. So in priority setting, in accountability setting, in performance monitoring, Another use is to try and make sure that when we're evaluating and appraising the impact of policy, we're looking across a really broad, broad spectrum of outcomes. So rather than appraising and evaluating policy only for economic impact, for example, trying to capture a much broader spectrum of people's experiences. The reason for doing this, again, it's not going to solve the fact that there are trade-offs um, what it can help us do is make those trade-offs much more explicit so we can have a more democratic debate around them, but also so that we can manage those trade-offs more efficiently and effectively and try and turn them into synergies where we can. Um, a, a little plug here to a recent report we wrote on COVID-19 and wellbeing, where we, we had a, a the first chapter of that report is really talking about what does any of this mean for policy? How, how can a wellbeing approach help to shape um, the recovery to COVID-19, we used the language of, of the four R's. So using well-being to refocus policy on what matters most to people, to redesign the content of policy from a much more multidimensional perspective, to realign um, the, the goals and objectives across government, and crucially to try and have more shared objectives in government. And finally, to reconnect. So this is about reconnecting policy with the people whom it affects, but also a really broad range of, of societal stakeholders, including business. So one thing to stress here, as I mentioned earlier, is that taking a well-being approach isn't necessarily about a prescribed list of policies. Um, in some ways, well-being evidence is best seen as a tool for improving the quality of decision making. Um, so to focus that decision making on the outcomes that we want, and also to have a common framework across government. And um, this second point is particularly important because at the moment, it's often the case that different government departments understand the word well-being in different ways. So for economics departments, well-being is about maximizing income and growth. 
For social policy departments, well-being might be about achieving social policy objectives. So without a common framework and understanding, these departments will continue to make parallel assessments in their own silos, and they all think they're doing well-being analysis. Um, so, you know, education policy might be assessed for its impact on education and maybe growth, um, but the wider social or environmental impacts of education aren't factored in. So the real game changer in many ways for a well-being approach is to require a more integrated assessment of policies so that economic policies are assessed for their environmental and social impacts and environmental policies are assessed for their economic and social impacts. So having agreed sets of well-being indicators gives departments a very practical understanding of the concept of social impacts, of economic impacts and environmental impacts. So I've got um, a couple of examples of how countries have started integrating this in concrete terms. And, and Larry and Marianne covered some of these already, so I'll try not to be repetitive. Um, but a few key areas are around informing the budget process, around national development planning, performance frameworks, fiscal strategies, creating new institutional structures or networks of people working together on these common issues um, and creating new and updated policy tools for civil servants. And again, um, at the end of the presentation, I've got links to a couple of uh, papers where we've written about some of these examples in much more detail. So what kind of assessments emerge when countries are taking a well-being approach? Well, the um, New Zealand budget, which again, I think you're, you're going to hear over and over in the course of today. Um, but one thing to emphasize about the budget process was really that there was an effort to use well-being at every stage in the process. So right the way from setting strategic priorities based on well-being evidence through to developing proposals and then assessing the well-being impacts of those proposals. So in concrete terms, what happened in the, in the New Zealand's first wellbeing budget was that there were five key priority areas identified through an analysis of wellbeing performance and, and a, a sort of very inclusive process in terms of the cabinet discussions and, and chief scientific advisors working together to develop these priorities. Um, and you can see that there's a focus on um, the transition to a low, low emissions economy, um, making sure that there is a good adjustment to the digital transition, lifting Maori and Pacifica outcomes, specifically around income, skills and opportunities. We've heard again a focus on child, well poverty and, uh, child poverty and child well-being, and also mental health and mental well-being was a, a key issue. Now, obviously, these are quite long-term systemic issues for society. So in, you know, in the course of one single budget, um, you're not necessarily going to completely reverse these outcomes. But in fact, these priorities have been rolled forward in New Zealand budgets since 2019. Um, so it's it's not the idea that you know each budget cycle you will have entirely new priorities because you know the world has completely shifted. These are these are really systemic issues identified for New Zealand. A um, couple of other examples, the Iceland 2021-2025 fiscal strategy included six well-being priorities. Again, you'll see some similarities here with New Zealand in terms of a focus on mental health, um, zero carbon emissions, but also secure housing, better work-life balance, um, better growth and innovation, and also better communication with the public. So again, that reconnect theme coming through. 
Last example here from the Canadian budget. So again, um, in Canada, there is an assessment of the quality of life impacts of each budget measure included in the budget, as well as details about the target population affected, including by gender, by income and by age. Um, so we see here there's, there's a budget measure called supporting vulnerable children and youth during their recovery. This is particularly focused on school dropouts. And we can see that the, the quality of life impacts are anticipated to be largest in terms of the prosperity and the society domains. The gender impact is, is anticipated to be neutral um, in terms of who on the income distribution this is targeted at. It's towards the lower middle end on the income spectrum. And for obvious reasons, this is expected to have the largest impacts in terms of intergenerational outcomes on youth. So last thing to say is applying a well-being lens to specific topic areas. So we've done some work on this in, in the OECD context on net zero transition. We also have a big project at the moment on mental health. Um, and the last thing I'll say is just that we're, we're really using um, some of these more topical areas as a way to illustrate what it means to take a well-being lens and what it means to use a, a well-being approach in practice. Again, lots more information available for those who need, but I will stop it there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any ideas for future episodes, any conversations you'd like us to have, any topics you'd like us to discuss, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.